I am Planta on the line in Vancouver, British Columbia at thecommentary.ca. In 2018, Whit Fraser published a, a memoir on Canada's North. The book uh, has just been republished, and it's been updated with what's happened in Mr. Fraser's life since 2018, including becoming uh, the vice-regal consort to his spouse, Mary Simon, Canada's 30th Governor-General. The book is full of engaging stories of his experiences in the North, first as a journalist with the CBC, covering, among other stories, the Mackenzie Valley Pipeline Inquiry, perhaps better known as the Berger Inquiry. Uh, we get a sense of uh, the climate, not to mention the urgency of climate change, but the people as well through Mr. Fraser's book. There are a lot of in- incredibly important and fascinating people that he recounts in this book, people he met as a reporter, fellow reporters, as well uh, through his work as chair of the Canadian Polar Commission and later executive director of the National Inuit Organization, Inuit Taparit Kanatami. We also get a sense of history as Mr. Fraser was uh, close to negotiations and enshrined Indigenous rights in the Canadian Constitution, the progress of uh, land claims to the new territory of Nunavut in 1999. The full title of the book is uh, True North Rising, My 50-Year Journey with the Inuit and Dene Leaders Who Transformed Canada's North. It is uh, published by Random House. He's also recently published a novel, Cold Edge of Heaven. Visit witfraser.ca for more information. He joined me from Radio Hall in Ottawa last week. Please uh, welcome to the Plant Online program, uh, Whit Fraser, Your Excellency. Good morning. Well, let's uh, stick with wit and good morning, Joe, and thank you. <laughs> it's it's nice to talk to you. You have such a gift in uh, storytelling as I'm reading the book. Uh, where do you think that comes from? My mother. <laughs> that's, that's the only answer. If I have a gift, it comes from my mother. Uh, Mom used to tell us stories, and and we would get beautiful letters from her that was that told stories of the family, so... I guess that's where it comes from. It, it comes through throughout the book, as you remember uh, and lovingly remember a lot of the people that, that you've encountered in the north and elsewhere. Um, there's a the beautiful scene in the book where, where you um, talk about your earliest memories of radio. It, it, it's such a lovely part because it, it, you talk about how fascinated you were by it, and then then you got to be on it as a journalist. Um, working in the business. Um, would you describe for people just how fascinated you were by, by the medium? Well, you have to go back kind of to the setting. Uh, in the 1940s, in a, in a warm room in a cold house, the room with the fireplace, uh, where my grandmother spent most of her time, with an old stand-up, probably Philco radio, mm-hmm. and through the 40s and 50s, and in the evening time, we'd be listening to the radio. This was before television. And we were both simply fascinated by these stories that would come on Earth, or the messengers, the northern messenger. Mm-hmm. And it would, be, it would be letters from people in southern Canada uh, to those serving as Mounties or trappers or traders or weather stations or people from hospitals, uh, letters back at home. And it was the only way to communicate. The Northern Messenger was really the Facebook of that time. And we'd be fascinated by this. And uh, I remember the names like Resolute and Isaacson and, and Isaacson and Eureka, and uh, little did I know that someday I'd be quite familiar with them. 
and that, that's that's the, the the great thing about the book is is um, as you narrate your own life story, um, these various lives, these various places, so become intertwined with your own life, and, and it's remarkable in some ways. You, you talk about your wife, for example, and um, you met her many years ago. Um, and you know you were both journalists at the time, and how a much a part of each other's lives you became, you know, throughout the years. Well, I think that's what's supposed to happen <laughs> with two people when they make a commitment for a lifetime. But it, it is. But without giving the book away, I'll uh, I'll share this much, Joe. Mm-hmm. That uh, uh, we met. She bailed me out in 1973 when I needed a translator at a big uh, Inuit conference at the birth of the land claims movement. Mm-hmm. And we were both in married lives at the time, but our orbits would cross periodically through then, through the land claim negotiations and settlements, uh, through the constitutional development, and through her rather her work and my work as a reporter. We encounter each other, and then until suddenly in the early 90s, uh, we met at a retirement party for a, an old boss, an old mutual boss, and we were both single, and uh, the rest is in the book. Indeed, indeed, and you, you've been married nearly uh, 30 years now, 30, is that right? Nearly 30 years, yeah. 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 Um, you, throughout the book, you talk about covering the Berger Inquiry. Um it's such a fascinating thing because this is. Was this the first time that you got to the north? No, I'd been uh, by uh, CBC standards. By that time, I was an old, I could be considered an old Northern Service hand because mm. I'd been there for five or seven years, uh, and I needed to be there that long because I was learning my craft as a reporter and. Uh, it turned out that that period in the North, in my mind, was uh, the best story in Canada. It was at the birth of the land claims organizations. The government yeah. wanted to develop the North in the interests of all Canadians. It just resulted in turmoil, racism, turbulence in every part of the North, and people were divided. And then comes along the biggest pipeline proposal in the world, and one of the biggest construction projects ever in Canada, and a handful of Indigenous people are now standing in the way, and that David and Goliath battle. And Tom Berger, after two and a half years of listening, and listening, and listening, and never interrupting and never interfering, but listening, seemed to found a way to resolve these these uh, differences that, that seemed insurmountable. Yeah. But he found the compromise for everybody. Uh, and it resulted in, in, uh, it resulted in, a, in, in, a, in a sense of resolution and reconciliation in that part of the North. Yeah, yeah. And you talk for the first time in the book about, about, uh, um, one day at the, at the inquiry, at, at, at a hearing where, um, you, you just simply th- throw your reporter book down and, and, and spoke freely as you did. Um, I, I guess people will wonder what precipitated that, and, and you've alluded to this just a moment ago. 
that there were racist remarks that you were hearing, and, and I guess that frustrated you, didn't it? Got you, got well, you mad. it frustrated me more than that, because what I didn't say is that in the coverage of the inquiry were four of the hardest-working, dedicated reporters that I've ever worked with, and gifted reporters. And none of their names would be familiar to Southern Canadians, mm -hmm. But they were Louis Blondin and Joe Tolby and Jim Sidatinley and Abel Dick. And between them, they provided coverage every evening for reporters in six languages, indigenous languages. And they worked with me 12 and 14 and 16 hours a day. We didn't miss any deadlines. And, uh, and they were the most dedicated broadcasters I'd worked with. And I'm listening to testimony in an oil town about uh, how shiftless and no good indigenous people are, and I uh, I lost it. Mm. I shouldn't have done it. It was a journalistic lapse, but I don't regret it. I've never regretted it. Uh, people asked me, and the CBC at the time asked me, well, would you do it again? And I said, well, I, yes, of course. If I've ever felt that strongly about something, I would do it again. But next time I'll resign first, mm. and uh, and that seemed to satisfy everybody. Uh, but I never did feel that strongly on anything again since then. Yeah. And what's fascinating is, as one reads that part of the book, is is um, it, there are people calling for for you to resign or calling for you to get fired, um, and you managed to survive that. And there's a lesson in there for for people, I guess. I mean, you you, you invoke um, Ali, and and the sort of the rope a dope. Yeah, thing. that was that, yeah. That, that's the only thing I could think about at the time, yeah. and it worked. And I just simply kept my, I kept my guard up and my hands up. I protected myself, and I didn't engage in the debate. And I discouraged colleagues from getting engaged in it. Said, let everybody have their say. Uh, what I said is on the record. I'm not taking away from it. I'm not trying to add from it. I'm not trying to duck it. Not taking up, taking any of it back, and I don't regret it. It's on the record. And what happened was the people, in, including chambers of commerce in some villages, mm -hmm. thought I should be removed from the north. They wrote a letter in desperation to the prime minister, and the prime minister responded, "The CBC has already dealt with the matter." And I remember seeing this news release from coming across the desk. From the Prime Minister's office, mm -hmm. um, the desk being my reporter's desk, and I, I didn't write a story on it, of course. I just read it, and I said, it's all over. Mm -hmm. Because when you, when you make a plea to the Prime Minister, and he doesn't take up your cause, you have no place else to go. And so it was all over. But it was, it was an interesting six months, but it was a long time ago, and, and no regrets. Indeed. Um, you mentioned Louis Blondin a moment ago. There's a nice scene in the book where you talk about um, him, a broadcaster, as you mentioned, and, and, and this guy named John Steves. Um, I guess he was in the oil and gas business. Is that right? Steves was a lawyer for the oil for the Canadian Arctic Gas. I see, yeah. And, and uh, the, the two of them over the uh, course of, uh, of your travels for the inquiry, um, they, they developed a friendship, didn't they? They developed a friendship. 
uh, we all developed friendships, but none were more marked and different characters. Steve's was a was a Viking size, filled every doorway he ever came through with impeccable suits uh-huh. and dress. And Louis was barely a hundred pounds. He'd lost the use of his legs as a young man, as a teenager, from an accident and arthritis. And he was confined to crutches, and very often John would bring him a cup of coffee at the coffee break, and they would talk. And they got along, and they just had a good, a good friendship. And I remember this scene, and I recounted it in the book, that we were all heading for dinner on their first day in the hearings that were being held across the country and this particular morning in Vancouver. Mm-hmm. And uh, the crew was heading to the nearest Greasy Spoon, and we said to Louis, are you coming along? And he said, no, I'm having lunch with John. And I looked out the doorway of the hotel, and they were a little ahead of us. And Louis uh, was crutching along beside John. He came to barely John's shoulders. John in his impeccable suit, Louis in bell-bottom trousers, uh, flowered shirt, vest, jet black hair down over his shoulders and a headband, and I ought to say that Louis had the Willie Nelson look before Willie Nelson had it. <laughs> and later in the day, as we had lunch, as we were coming back, we came around the corner, and there both of them are sitting in this fine restaurant with the white linen. And uh, I would say that was reconciliation long, long, long before we thought of the term in, this, in today's context. Indeed, yeah. I just thought it was a lovely scene in the book. Um, you give us wit, such a um, marvelous view of the North, and, and it's a unique view that, that you experienced, that you lived in, traveled through, and, and have seen from above over, over, over 50 years now. Well, what does it mean for you? I mean, you're sitting in Ottawa right now, and, and I'm sure um, you, you can think of very special moments in the cold, and, and um, you feel the warmth of a lot of the people that you write about in the book in your memory right now, don't you? Absolutely, and uh, and in my memory right now is that is that I got an invitation the other day, which I'm going to which I've accepted to see some more of it again this summer with a with a trip with Adventure Canada to be a, a resource person on the on one of their cruise ships, mm-hmm. small cruise ship that goes visits certain parts of the Arctic every year. And, and I've done this before with students and and with Adventure Canada, so uh, I was just delighted to get the invitation to go back. And and uh, Mary and I look for, forward to every trip that we can take north, and and we will get we will get to do that to all three territories, of course, mm-hmm. several times during our mandate. But those visits will be structured. They'll be beautiful, but they'll be structured. And I don't think that. She will get the freedom that she would like to have to just to take her pail and get into a blueberry patch all by herself, <laughs> and maybe I could get into a canoe and find a fishing hole. Those moments are going to be more difficult to get, but but that's the kind of thing that we cherish and, and remember. Indeed. You, you talk about uh, carrying uh, coolers full of blueberries on, on a plane and... <laughs> 
<laughs> Blueberries that she picked and and uh, that you managed to enjoy throughout the year at home, right? Yeah. Well, yeah, well, there have been years where she has hand picked over a hundred pounds of berries. Wow. She has, not me. She <laughs> has picked them. I've carried them out in the cooler. Yeah. yeah. Um. Why Why should we? Um, uh, in, in the South, care about the North. I mean, this is not something that, that makes the, the the news every day. And, I'm going to uh, answer that. I want to answer that two ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a part of me that I know that Canadians care far more about the North than even they think themselves. I'll give you a couple of examples. I'll give you one good example. When I work in in television for CBC. I worked eight years on Parliament Hill. Mm-hmm. Uh, not once in eight years of political reporting did somebody meet me on the street the following morning and say, holy smokes, but that was a great piece you did last night on the budget. But every item that I did on the North, and I had free access to go to the North when I thought there was a worthwhile story, all the editors would say is, when will you be back? Not how much is it going to cost. Mm. When will you be back? Uh, and all of those stories that were done in the North, people would comment on the street or in a restaurant or in an airport, I saw you the other night in the North. Wow, I'd like to be there. I'd like to go there. Uh, and there was a story that I had covered in the mid-'80s and it was the voyage of the American icebreaker, the Polar Sea, through the Northwest Passage, against Canada's wishes, but Canadians couldn't stop it, stop it anyway without going to war. And so two countries disagreed, agreed to disagree, and the Americans went through the Northwest Passage, and Canada followed it, and I followed the ship's parade through as a reporter. At the end of it all, the managing editor said, a week or two weeks later, that was ratings week, that, that particular week. Mm-hmm. And we got the ratings, and that's the highest rating that the National had ever gotten until that period of time, mm-hmm. with several million viewers. And it was the indication that people had tuned in because there was a northern story and they the Arctic itself and Canada's integrity about the Arctic were all part of the story. And it said to me that that there is a great feeling with among Canadians about the North and people shouldn't mess with it. Yeah, and and, and that's what one gets as they read True North Rising is that uh, we should do better in terms of supporting the North. I mean, when we think of, of the, the, the challenge of climate change, I mean, that's keenly felt there. You provide health statistics in your book about, you know, terms of um, in terms of life expectancy or even addiction, and, and they're often heartbreaking to read. I mean, they're, they're things that need to be done and, and done quickly. Yes, and and I don't have the answers, but I I did say in the book, and I won't back up, back down from anything that I've said, in, in in spite of the fact that I'm in a different life now than I was when I when I wrote it, but I won't back down from anything, that uh, we're trying to, we try to address most of the issues in the North incrementally rather than in a master plan with a very large 
with a very large policy, public policy, financial commitment. Uh, if a community, if a region puts in a, a real need for 200 houses, uh, that gets negotiated downward, mm. and maybe there's an announcement that 50 houses are going to be built. Well, if they build the 50 houses, that still leaves a shortcut, a shortfall of 150, and it doesn't take long before that shortfall of 150 is back up to over 200, and so on and so on it goes, because uh, I, I just think that at some point you have to address the magnitude of the issue. And so... Um in your unique seat up closer in Ottawa, um, do you have reason to be optimistic that things will get better for for people in the north? I always, I have always been optimistic, and and I and I will remain that way. Uh, you you keep raising the issues. Uh, I've done my part by trying to write about them. Uh, northern people, are, northern people themselves are far better and are getting much better at at raising their own issues, at doing their own lobbying, uh, of playing, of, 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 uh, of representing themselves and their needs. Uh, the northern organizations and political movement is far, far stronger than it has been two or three decades ago, mm-hmm. more focused uh, with the whole issue of Focus on indigenous issues, resolution, uh, sorry, reconciliation, uh, the uh, the colonialism and the racism that have existed across the country over the last number of decades. All of these are now very much in the public domain and the public discussion, and so we are making we are making headway. Uh, I'd like to see it be faster, mm-hmm. but. But it is happening, and and I'm more optimistic than than any time in the past decade. The other thing I was thinking about, Whit, as I was reading your book, was was um, uh, I certainly was charmed and and fascinated by the North. Um, I'm sure a lot of people reading the book will be inspired to go there. At the same time, we don't want it to be, say, ruined by tourism and the sort. Um, Is that your fear that that that, People will, 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 I mean, we, we should support the North, but I mean, we don't want it to, to get ruined at the same time. Uh, it's not my fear because, uh, because of its size uh, and because of its climate mm-hmm. and because of its people, the North is, the North is well equipped to look after itself. People have tried big cruise ships through the Northwest Passage, uh, but they didn't really experience anything but, but scenery because you can't put several hundred people into a community and give them an experience. But the small groups uh, of 50 and 60 that visit a community one day and then uh, go to a, a, an environmental site uh, the next are very helpful. Um because they are people that spend a lot of money to go north, and they add to the economy, but they also are people who have who use their voice in the south. They are they are people who will advocate 
uh, for climate change. They are the kind of people who will advocate for fairness and, and um, indigenous people's rights. Uh, if they're going to spend many thousands of dollars, they have a voice, and I and I think there's a good, there's a pretty good, very good balance being struck with uh, with northern tourism because everybody wants to go there, but not everybody can afford to. It's very mm, expensive, right? Yeah, and and uh, and if you want to go to a small community, well, there's a small hotel, and uh, there, there may be challenges of places to stay and all of that. So. The North is, there's a balance and, and, it, and it sorts itself out, I think, that there's not swarms of people traveling all over the North because it's not, not accessible. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, this book was, I guess it was first published in 2018, is that right? Yes, and, uh, and, and the, the, uh, the story of the re-rise, of the rise again, the rise again, true North rise again. Uh-huh. Uh, it was published by a small publisher in Ottawa, and he had his market was in the Ottawa Valley, and he was very good to me, and his name was Tim Gordon, and it was Burnstown Publishing. And after Mary's appointment in 2021, uh, I got a call from an agent in Toronto who said, I'd like to represent you. I read the book, and I believe the book needs a far wider distribution. I can get I think I can get Random House to republish it. Uh, can you get the rights? And I called Tim, and in five minutes, he had relinquished the rights because he agreed that the book needed a wider distribution. And I thought that was a mark of great generosity, and I'm forever grateful for him doing that. But there was no negotiation. It was yes with I'll do that. And in the book, you, you um, I guess you bring us up to date. You talk about... Um, um, and I, yeah, go ahead. You, you talk about your, your, your wife's appointment as, as Governor General and, and what it was like in, in, in those, say, moments uh, prior. I mean, you, you, you'd you gone through this process, I guess, what, uh, 13 years ago or so? When, when well, sp- there was a, it appears there was a, that she was on a list 13 mm-hmm. years or more ago. And we learned that from the television news at night time, saying, to our great surprise, Mary Simon is on the short list to be the Governor General. Now, to be fair, there were no phone calls. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, and then a few months later, there was lots of speculation. A few months later, the same time, same station, David Johnson has been named the new Governor General of Canada. So we said, that's that. Went to sleep. And uh, weren't totally devastated by it. Maybe we needed some kind of a sense of relief, but at least we knew. But it was the second time around in 2021. Uh Uh, I can only say that Mary had many, many, many phone calls, none of which I was a party to. But she had many, many phone calls, and there was virtually no speculation in the media until it happened. Um, would you give us some insight into to what life is like for you now? I mean, I also understand that you've 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 released a novel recently, Cold Edge of Heaven. 
Um, but, but it is, it, it, as you write in the book, you talk about the, the time that, that you spent in Denmark with, with her when she was ambassador there. She was also ambassador for circumpolar affairs at the same time. It, it, it's a lot of hard work, um, and, and you're doing your best, I guess, to support her in that. Is that right? That's what it, uh, yes. Uh, I can't tell you how. I can't tell you how much work she does, but I think there's more, more far more work than I would have imagined, uh, and different things that I would have known nothing about. Mm. But it's, it, it's, uh, for a governor general, for any governor general, it's a pretty rigorous schedule. For a spouse, it's not nearly as rigorous. Uh, and you have you have your own freedom that you can carve out your time to do the things that you wish to do, uh, and uh, probably good thing to do because then it, then you're not in somebody else's uh, trying to manage somebody else's affairs. Mm-hmm. Uh, so so I finished the one book and uh, the the novel and and got this one uh, re- reissued. Mm-hmm. And I had some ideas that there might be some other northern stories I'd like to tell. But uh, life is entirely different. You can't describe how different it is. And we have said, Joe, both of us together at the very first day, mm-hmm. every part of our life is going to change and we need to be prepared for that. But let's work every day uh, at not having that change us. Mm-hmm. So that, that's the challenge and the trick. Yeah. And I guess this year um, you'll be able to, to travel more of the country. Is that right? Is that the plan? Well, look, yes, uh, and we there, there's there's some visits. Uh, a governor general is expected to travel on an official visit at least once in a mandate to each province and each territory, and you don't do them all in one year for sure. Right. So I know that there's an official visit to Yukon uh, that I'm really looking forward to in June. And uh, apart from that, I don't, I, I, I wouldn't be able to talk about what the calendar is. Sure, sure. But uh, because it's flexible, indeed. But but the big plan is is for June, and we're both really looking forward to that. Wade, it's been such a pleasure to to speak with you today. I so appreciate your time. It's, it's a it's a wonderful book, and and I'm I'm very thank glad to, to have read it. And 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 thank you for 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 this. And and uh, congratulations, and continue good luck with the book. All right, thank you, Joe, very much, and I appreciate it as well. The website for more is at witfraser.ca. The book is called True North Rising: My Fifty Year Journey with the Inuit and Dene Leaders Who Transformed Canada's North. It's uh, published by Random House. It's uh, author Whit Fraser joined me on the line from Ottawa in Vancouver. I'm Joseph Planto.